right, good morning, everybody. Really glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll open it up to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be one in a pew nearby. Grab it, open up to 1 Peter um, so you can follow along as we study God's Word together. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those home. Uh, consider it our gift to you and read it, study it, see the Lord in His Word. Last week, we continued to see the specific application of some general principles that Peter laid out in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. If you remember, we saw these three things. Number one, beloved, this place is not our home. Number two, beloved, there is a war within. The flesh and the spirit are at odds with one another. And number three, beloved, there is a world to win. Our verbal witness to the gospel must be undergirded by Christian living. That's what we've talked about, and that's what this text is teaching us about. How do we live as Christians in this broken world? A few weeks ago, we saw these general principles applied to our relationship to governing authorities. And then last week, the issue at hand was the slave's relationship to his master. And this was another tricky and sensitive part of life in the first century. I told you that bringing this message into our day and age requires a little bit of work. And probably the best parallel for us is employment, especially employment where there is a dramatic imbalance of power, maybe even more specifically where we have an unreasonable boss, we need to apply these principles. What do we do? How do we live? Those are the questions we heard answered from the text last week. And I tried to build an argument from greater to lesser as we sought the application last week. Basically, I said if Christian slaves, Christian slaves in the first century are to submit even to hostile masters with all respect, then surely Christian workers, Christian employees in the 21st century should also submit to their bosses with all respect. And so as we tried to think through the application, we tried to use those same three general principles from verse 11 and 12. Beloved, this place is not our home. So as we live and operate here following Jesus, we will be rejected. We will be mistreated as much as we align ourselves with our king and his kingdom as we try to live here. But we must keep our minds on him always. That's one of the most helpful things we saw in the text last week is we do all of this with a, with a consciousness of God. We keep our minds on him by spiritual disciplines, by fellowship in the church, and thirdly, by receiving hardship, by receiving injustice, by receiving suffering as a means of sanctification. You may remember that I talked about that red light at walk and roll and how I want to get stopped there and say, this thing is here to make me more like Jesus. I want to receive other things in my life that are difficult and say, this is here to make me more like Jesus. And I think if we'll receive it that way, um, it'll make us more like Jesus. If we just get angry or if we run the red light, that doesn't help anybody with anything. Beloved, this place is not our home. Beloved, there is a war within. Nothing in our flesh leans the way the text was teaching us to lean last week. But there's another way, a different way than the flesh. And I wonder how often uh, the voice of the flesh and the voice of the culture uh, is, is louder in my mind than the Holy Spirit's voice is loud in my heart. Um, I got plenty of voices telling me to rise up and stand firm and fight for myself. I got plenty of, of voices telling me I've got rights and I've got privileges and I should fight for those things. Uh, the voice of the Spirit says something different, says follow the way of Jesus. And I want to hear that voice just as loudly. And I want to remind you when we talk about this war that happens within, it, it is not a war for our bank accounts. It's not a war for our bodies. It's not a war for our social position in the culture. It's a war for our souls. 
What is at stake in this battle is our soul, our eternal soul. And so this is serious business. And finally, I said there's a world to win. Don't forget, in the midst of all of this, even as we deal with an unreasonable boss, a crooked boss, the world is watching. They are always watching. And they are listening to see if we are going to talk about the boss just like they do. They're watching to see how we're going to react when we catch heat simply for being Christians, simply for following faithfully after Jesus. And I wonder what they will see when that happens. What will they hear when that happens? Will they see that we are just like them? Or will they see, by God's grace, that we are like him? We are different, and we are like the Lord Jesus Christ in those situations. Brothers and sisters, let's follow the Lord Jesus Christ. This week's text in 1 Peter chapter 2 is super interesting. Next week's text is going to be even more interesting. There is some divine comedy in all of this uh, because next week is Mother's Day. And if you want to read the first bit of chapter 3, the text that we'll have next week couldn't be better timed in some ways. But this week's text is interesting. And there's a temptation this week just to zoom in on the suffering of Jesus and preach these verses as if they stand alone. And, And I really believe if I did that, we would hear a ton of gospel truth. If I just preach this text detached from all of its context, we would hear a ton of gospel truth worth celebrating. But we must remember that every text has a context. And this week, Peter is going to bring forth the suffering of Jesus, not just to proclaim the gospel as if he's teaching some new thing, not not just to talk about the gospel as if he's shifted gears somehow, but rather he brings forth the suffering of Jesus to reinforce the point he has been making about the suffering of his audience about the suffering of his faithful audience. So today, to be faithful to the text, we need to do both of these things. We need to proclaim the gospel and prepare for suffering. In fact, maybe a better way to say it is we need to proclaim the gospel as preparation for suffering. It is with an understanding of how Jesus suffered that we prepare to endure our own suffering. These two things are not different. They are flip sides of the same coin. So let's read the text together. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to cover verses 21 to 25. God's word says this. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept kept entrusting himself To him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask today that you would open our eyes more to the reality of Jesus' suffering. That we would see that he suffered for us, like in our place, the Lamb of God in our place. It was my death, he died. And also that he left us an example to follow after. Teach us the hard truth that we have been called, not just from darkness into light, not just from death into life, but we've been called to follow Jesus down the hard road of rejection and pain and suffering. But in this, we also pray that you would remind us that the road that Jesus walked was the road to glory. 
And so it is for us as well. So, Father, help us to see Jesus today and give us faith to trust in him. And we pray also that you will give us faith to follow him, no matter the cost. And we pray all this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. So there's a lot. In fact, I told, I told Doug this morning, I said, I have more notes for you to put on the screen than I've ever had before uh, in the history uh, of screens. And so there's a lot for us to cover today, and it's, it's really important stuff, and it's really countercultural too. Like, no one walked in the room today leaning the way this text teaches us to lean. Nobody, myself included. This is a real struggle for us. And yet what we're going to see today is there is a way to walk that is faithful to Jesus that is way different than the way my flesh wants. It's way different than the way this culture teaches. But we are called to follow the path of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, speaking of calling, look at verse 21. In verse 21, Peter starts this by saying, For you have been called for this purpose. Now, right off the bat, there are several references here to what we've seen over the last few weeks. Particularly, the notes from last week about suffering when we do what is right. Suffering when we do what is right. For, the word for at the beginning of verse 21, clues us in that Peter is giving some ground here for what he said last week. When he said, if you suffer for doing what is right, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He's going to explain that a little more in this next phrase. And then when he talks about this purpose, when he says you've been called for this purpose, that's a reference to the suffering that we do experience when we do what is right. And maybe what is most interesting here, though, is that Peter says we have been called to this. We have been called to do right, and we have been called to suffer. We don't normally think about calling that way. We don't think about calling to suffer. When we talk about being called out of darkness into light, we get all excited. When we talk about being called from death to life, we get all excited. When we talk about being called unto salvation, we are glad to hear people talk about that. But here, we are told that we are called to suffer. We are called to patiently endure suffering. That is part of the calling of the Christian life. Tom Schreiner says it like this. He says, suffering, in other words, is not a detour by which believers receive the inheritance to which they were called. No, it is God's appointed means for receiving the inheritance. How, how do we get to the promised inheritance? We get to it through the road of suffering. That's part of what we were called to. Edmund Clowney says it even more bluntly. He says, Peter has shown the glory of God's calling. Christians have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. They are called as God's elect, his chosen people, heirs of the blessing. Amen. But now, Peter says, to this you were called. To what? To suffering. To unjust abuse. To patient endurance when they are beaten for doing right. Brothers and sisters, in this room, we don't fear being beaten for do, doing what is right. But his original audience did. We need to take these principles and apply them to the suffering that we face for doing what is right. I'm telling you, this is a hard word today. It's not easy to accept. Peter didn't like this talk when he first heard it, right? We talked about that a little bit last week. When he first talked, heard Jesus talking about his own suffering and his impending death, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him for talking this way. The Messiah is not one who is going to suffer. The Messiah is not one who is going to die. Peter rebuked the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the Lord Jesus Christ rebuked Peter. In fact, said, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is fixed on man's ways and not God's ways. You remember that? Peter also didn't like this talk later on after Jesus died for our sins and rose again and then met with Peter on the seashore. You remember this? 
And he restored. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? You remember all that? Well, after that, Jesus spoke pretty plainly about the suffering that Peter himself was going to endure. And Peter didn't like that a whole lot. He didn't like thinking about how someone was going to lead him away to his death as well. Peter didn't like that in the early days. I don't like it. And yet it is the clear message of the text. Peter didn't like it. The disciples on the road to Emmaus seemed to be all bummed out after the resurrection of Jesus because they didn't have a category for a suffering Messiah. You remember that scene, right? It's just after Jesus has risen from the dead and there are these two dudes who are walking away from Jerusalem and their faces are long because their hope is gone because the Messiah has died. And that Messiah who has risen again walks with them. They don't know it's him, but he walks with them. And if you read in Luke chapter 24, you see this. It said, he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Was it not necessary, the Messiah said, for the Messiah to suffer these things? That's part of the path. He goes on and says, then he explained it to them himself concerning these things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So this is not something we want to hear. It's not something Peter liked to hear. It's not something the disciples on the road to Emmaus wanted to hear. And yet, this is the call of the Christian life. The call call of the Christian life is to suffer injustice for doing what is right. Because this world is not our home. This world is not our home. If we follow Jesus, we will experience what he experienced. Look what it says next. It says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. In this verse, there are two things going on, and those two things work together. And this is really going to be the outline for the rest of the day. Two sides of the same coin. And the first part is when he says Jesus suffered for us. Peter speaks first about Jesus suffering for us in the sense of atonement or sacrifice or propitiation. This is when he says Christ suffered for you. All right, if you're an underliner or a circle, I would underline or circle for you. And then he's going to explain what that means later on in verses 24 and 25. What does it mean that the Christ suffered for us? Well, it means this, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in the body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. We're going to deal with that in a minute, how Jesus died for us as a sacrificial atonement, as propitiation, as the substitutionary sacrifice for us. That's the heart of the gospel. And we're going to to end our time there today, and it'll be a good place to end. But then Peter speaks about Jesus' suffering, secondly, as an example for us. He didn't just die for us as a sacrifice, he suffered for us as an example that we would follow in his steps. Now, there's some really interesting language there. The word for example paints this picture of putting a a piece of paper over something else so that you can trace and follow the lead, right? Some of you learned how to write like that. Some of you learned how to write your letters like that by putting a piece of paper over a pattern and tracing those things on your own paper. Some of you learned how to draw like that, like you took a a good drawing, and you put a piece of paper over the top of it, and you drew according to the lines. That's exactly the picture that Jesus is for us. He is the standard, and we lay our lives over the top of his, and we live according to that pattern, that picture. That's the picture that's going on in the text. 
And Peter's going to elaborate on that in verses 22 and 23. So when he says he's an example for us, he goes right into explaining what that looks like in verses 22 and 23, which is where we're going to start in just a minute. Karen Jobes gets this right when she says, If Christians are to live as servants of God, the essence of that identity is a willingness to suffer unjustly as Jesus did, exemplifying in suffering the same attitude and behavior that he did. Jesus Christ left us this pattern over which to trace out our lives in order that we may follow in his footsteps. That's what we want to do. And so we're going to look at what did that look like? When Jesus suffered injustice, how did he do it? And if, if we understand how he did it, that's the pattern for us. That's the way we should do it as well. One last thing before we move on. It really seems like Isaiah 53 is all over Peter's brain when he's writing this, right? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, which is why we read it earlier, it seems to be just rolling around in his head, and it comes out in this text in a bunch of different ways. Look at verse 22. This is the pattern. This is the pattern. He suffered as a pattern for us. Verse 22 tells us how. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So what is the pattern? What is the pattern of Jesus' life that we are to follow? There are three things in this part of the text. Number one, his suffering was not a result of his sin. His suffering was not a result of his sin. It says in verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now, you guys have been around long enough to know that this is a big gospel point that we're going to focus on later in the text that teaches us that Jesus was not suffering for his own sin. Rather, he was suffering for our sin, right? But that doesn't seem to be Peter's main point here. That doesn't seem to be the main focus here. Here, the main focus is just on the first part of that, that Jesus was not suffering for his sin. Jesus didn't sin, and so he didn't deserve what he was experiencing. But nonetheless, his suffering was real. Look at all these texts that, that testify to the sinlessness of Jesus in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5, we sang this a minute ago. It says, verse 21, He made him who knew no sin, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus knew no sin. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted and yet without sin. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In Jesus there is no sin. The gospel writers also talk about this. They talk about outsiders who were able to witness this. John speaks about how Pilate, even Pilate, who eventually condemned Jesus to death, recognized that he wasn't a sinner. Look at John chapter 19. It says, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Even pagan Pilate recognized that Jesus was not a sinner and did not deserve to die. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about one of those guys who hung next to Jesus on a cross of his own. Even that guy recognized that Jesus didn't deserve to be there. Luke chapter 23 tells this story. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God 
since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we, listen, we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. You catch that? He's saying, we deserve to be on the cross. We are thieves who deserve to be here. But look what he says next. But this man, in reference to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. I'm telling you, even criminals recognize that Jesus was sinless. And here in this text that we're looking at in 1 Peter, Peter, Peter is affirming Jesus' sinlessness, which is noteworthy in itself, right? Given how closely those two guys walked. Like, you walk with me for three years, and I guarantee you you're not going to say, Chris was sinless. Right? Walk with me for three days, and you're going to know that I am a sinner who is desperately in need of God's grace. But Peter walked with Jesus for three years and is able to say he was sinless. He always did right. He never did wrong all the way to the end. So here's the point. Here's the point. If we are going to follow the pattern that Jesus gave us, the suffering that we face must not be a result of our own sin. We must not be like that guy on the cross who says, I'm here justly. I am suffering justly. I stole and therefore I deserve to be crucified. If we're going to follow the pattern of Jesus, our suffering must not be a result of our sin. Which, by the way, is exactly what we talked about last week, right? Look back at verse 19. He says, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are treated harshly, you endure that with patience? But if when you do right, if when you do right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. One preacher said it like this. Don't let the cause of your suffering be sin. That's the point. Don't let the cause of your suffering be sin. And he went on and said, and don't let the result of your suffering be sin. Point number one is that Jesus' suffering was not a result of his sin. Point number two is that Jesus did not retaliate. He did not sin in response to his unjust suffering. He did not retaliate. And this is tough, right? If this is the pattern that we're to follow and the call is to not retaliate, this is tough. But let's think it through. Jesus was the most powerful man to ever walk the face of the earth, right? The most powerful man. I mean, he was God in the flesh after all. And when he was reviled, when he was insulted, when he was beaten and mocked and crucified, I want you to know that he could have retaliated. And if he had, he would have been justified. And if he had, he would have done it properly. He could have struck down everyone who was against him. In fact, we get just the tiniest little taste of this in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before, well, in the process of Judas handing him over, Someone says, we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Do you remember this? And Jesus says literally, I am. And everybody falls down. Everybody in the scene is knocked to the ground just because Jesus says, I am. We get a little tiny taste of what Jesus could have done. But all those guys get up and he lets them take him away. Jesus could have destroyed all of his enemies, but he did not. He did not retaliate. And it wasn't as if his suffering was nominal. It's not as if his suffering was small. Jesus did not retaliate even though his suffering was great. Let's look at some of that suffering from Mark's gospel. 
Mark, who is most closely associated with Peter, who is the author of our letter. Mark chapter 14, verse 65, thinking about Jesus' suffering, it says, Some began to spit at him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him with their fists, and say to him, Prophesy! And the officers received him with slaps in the face. And what did he do? He did not retaliate. Read on in chapter 15. It says, They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim to him, Hail, the king of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And what did he do? He did not retaliate. Look at chapter 15, verse 29. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. And what did he do? He did not retaliate. He did not lash out. In fact, he prayed for their forgiveness. He prayed for the forgiveness of those who were crucifying him. Here's the point. If we are going to follow the pattern of Jesus, we are going to have to do battle with our fleshly lust to get even. Our fleshly lust for revenge. Our fleshly lust for retaliation that is so strong. Our flesh craves revenge. Our flesh craves vindication. But if we are going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to put that to death. We are going to have to put to death the flesh. Craig Keener says, Non-retaliation was obviously not the dominant ideal of antiquity. And then he went on to quote a bunch of secular scholars from Jesus' time who basically said, if you get slapped in the face and you don't slap that person back, you are weak and you are a fool. Non-retaliation was not the dominant ideal of antiquity and it is not the dominant ideal of modernity. Nor was non-retaliation considered to be easy, especially given ancient Mediterranean concern for honor and shame. It was not the cultural norm. It was a hard thing to not retaliate. Your honor was on the line. If someone hurts you, if someone uh, violates you in some sort of injustice and you don't fight back, you lose your honor and you are shamed. This is a theme in 1 Peter that we're not going to be able to escape. It's going to come up in a few weeks in 1 Peter chapter 3. It came up this morning in Sunday school if you were paying attention. Let no one repay evil for evil. It's not the way we roll as followers of Jesus. That's the way everyone around us goes, but it is not for us. He's going to say in chapter 3 verse 8, to sum it up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. 
It's the same thing. Like, like this is not going to be a one-off lesson that we'll walk away from and say, whew, I'm glad we got that over with so we can get back to easier stuff. No, Peter is going to keep hammering this point home with us. It's the same as we saw in Romans chapter 12 that we read together last week when God's word says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. In all of this, I acknowledge that there's a way that seems right to my flesh. There's a, there's a way that seems right to my flesh to exchange blow for blow. To stand up and fight when I am the victim of injustice. There's a way that seems right to the culture around us. But this text is teaching us that there's another way. That is the way of Jesus to which we have been called. Jesus could have resisted. Jesus could have delivered himself. Jesus had more rights than you can imagine. Jesus had more power than you could ever hold. Jesus had privileges that you can only dream about, and his followers all expected him to exercise all of that, and he did not. He did not. This is the expectation of the world, but the kingdom of Christ is not of this world. Jesus was able to resist social pressure and we must also resist it because we are more concerned about following him than we are about getting even. We must be more concerned about following him than getting even. That's hard. Number one, Jesus' suffering was not a result of his sin. Number two, Jesus did not retaliate. And number three, this is the biggest one, Jesus trusted the Father. As he suffered, he trusted the Father. Karen Job says, Jesus' silence was the silence not of passive resignation, but of patient confidence. Patient confidence. He knew the bigger picture. He knew the rest of the story, and we do as well. Jesus was able to keep his mouth shut. He was able to keep his temper in check if he had a temper. He was able to restrain a desire to lash out because he knew that the Father would right all the wrongs in the end. Jesus knew that there would be justice. He knew, as Laura often reminds me, when I am caught up in my longing for revenge, he knew that there is a judge in heaven. And this also seems to be a theme of 1 Peter. As Peter gives these suffering believers some direction for how to live as the victims of injustice, he says in chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You do what is right. Brothers and sisters, you do what is right. And if you get dumped on for that, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord to make it right in the end. Don't feel like you've got to do that for yourself. One preacher said, undergirding Jesus' peaceful, resolute acceptance of his suffering was an unshakable confidence in the perfectly righteous plan of him who judges justly, judges righteously. Undergirding, undergirding his silent suffering was profound trust in the good plan of the Father. Also undergirding his silent suffering was a familiarity with the Bible in Leviticus chapter 19 in particular that says, you shall not take vengeance. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That last bit, I am the Lord, is a reminder that he will do it. 
that he will see to it that everything is judged rightly, not you. Now, there's some difficult untangling to do theologically here, I'll admit. How does Jesus, who himself is the righteous judge, entrust himself to the Father to be the righteous judge? Don't don't get caught up in that too far. Because if you dive into that too deeply, you might miss the main point. The main point is that Jesus was able to stay silent. Jesus was able to suffer injustice from the hands of evil men. He was able not to lash out because he knew that the Father would one day make it all right. And in this, he's an example to us. Here's the point. Here's the point. If we are going to follow the pattern of Jesus, we're going to have to let go of our desire to execute our own justice. And we're going to simply have to trust God to do it right in the end. When we take matters into our own hands, we make a mess of it every time. But we can trust the Lord to judge rightly. We can trust the Lord to do justice. And in his hands, we find rest. In his hands, we find comfort. Jesus takes all of this a step further, though, because he also has a desire to see mercy toward his enemies. He doesn't just trust the Father to execute judgment on them in the end. He asks the Father to show them mercy. You remember this? As they're crucifying him, what does he say? Oh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. Not, Father, destroy them after a while for what they are doing. He says, in that moment, Father, forgive them for what they are doing, for they, they don't know. They don't know what's going on here. Our desire should be to see those who have done us wrong in heaven. Oh, that was, that's a hard word to say. That almost doesn't come out of my mouth. Our desire should be to see those who've done us wrong in heaven. We have been forgiven much. We are the recipients of God's free and abundant grace and mercy. And our desire should be to see others receive that grace and mercy as well. Justice is certain. Mercy and grace are surprising and we should desire it for others. When we're suffering injustice, don't lash out. Trust the Lord. He'll make it right in far better ways than you could ever imagine. So those three things are important. When we look at the pattern of Jesus for our lives, when we suffer injustice, his suffering was not a result of his sin, so ours should not be either. Number two, he did not retaliate, and neither should we if we're going to follow him. And number three, he trusted the Father, and so must we in those difficult days. But let's shift gears. Let's shift gears now and talk about the substitutionary death of Jesus for our sins. This is the for us part. Remember I told you he said two things. He said Christ suffered for us to be an example that we would follow. For us as substitutionary atonement. That's what he picks up in chapter, in verse 24. Read it with me. It says, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I want to remind you, Isaiah 53 is behind all of this. The images here are just coming right out of that description of the suffering servant that, Jesus, that, that Laura read to us earlier. Notice it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. There's a weird thing in the language here that's like this redundant emphasis on him at the beginning of the verse. He himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. It's intended to give us this sense of awe and wonder that the one who did no sin, the one who knew no sin, the one who suffered 
patiently and silently, who did not revile, who did not retaliate. He was doing this for us. The sinless one was sacrificed for us. Not just any random dude who was taking our place. It's the sinless son of God in our place. He, the sinless son of God, bore our sins, this text teaches us. This is the idea of imputation. It's what scholars call it. That is, our sins, which are many, right? If we're honest with ourselves, we got a whole pile of sins today, let alone for our whole life. Our sins, which are many, were credited to Christ's account. Much the same way that the bulls and goats in the Old Testament, someone would come put their hand on the head and like transfer symbolically the sins of the people to that animal to die then in the place of the people. That was all just symbolic. That was all just a picture. It didn't really take away the sins, right? It didn't really cleanse the conscience. But it was a picture of this idea of this substitute is going to bear our sins. Well, Jesus really did do that. Not like the bulls and goats. He really did take our sins. He bore our sins in his body. Our sins were credited to his account. Jesus took our sins upon himself as if they were his own. And he took the suffering and he took the death that you and I deserve. He didn't deserve any of that. That's why we were singing a while ago, it was my death, my death, you died. That is a profound theological statement. That is a heavy thing. It was my death, you died. I am raised to life. It was not his own death. Jesus did not deserve any of that. That's why we meditate on the suffering and death of Jesus uh, a Holy Week on Monday, th Monday, Thursday. We try to think deeply about betrayal. We try to think deeply about scourging. We try to think deeply about spitting on his face and all those things that we read about. I watched some of you a minute ago as I was reading those texts. You're like teary, teary and thinking about the suffering of Jesus. And you should be because he didn't deserve any of that. He didn't deserve any of that. I deserve all of that. You deserve all of that. And he took it. He took your sin and therefore took your suffering and your death in his own body. This is incredible. New American Standard in this verse kind of drops the ball in the translation of the word cross here. It says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. It is an intended reference to the cross, but the word that is used in the original language is not the word for cross. It's the word for tree. It's a more general word for the tree. And Peter's audience would have immediately understood the significance of that. They would have immediately connected what is happening with Jesus at the cross, bearing our sins, as accepting the curse of sin and its punishment on the tree. Galatians 3 helps explain this. It's a small thing, but it's really significant. Jesus didn't just go to the cross. He went to the tree. And he took the curse for us. The curse that was upon us because of our sin. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Do you catch this? That's all based on the logic of Leviticus chapter, I mean Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23. 
But do you catch the logic of it? He took the curse. He took the curse for us. He became the curse for us so that we might get the blessing. What's the opposite of a curse? It's a blessing. If you're going to think of another word for the opposite of curse, what would it be? Promise. He took the curse so that we get the blessing. He took the curse so that we get the promise. That's what's happening on the tree. It's the best news ever. It's the best news ever that Jesus died in our place. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that, look at this, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That word so that, we we know to look for that when we're reading the Bible. We we know that that phrase is going to give us a clue to the purpose. So that. But the purpose here is not what we would expect. We're used to seeing Jesus' death on the cross being for the purpose of our forgiveness. The purpose of our justification. And that's true, right? Peter himself is going to proclaim that in verse 18 of chapter 3. When he says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. What happened on the cross was to sow that of the cross to bring us to God. That's what we're used to. We're not used to what he says here in chapter 2. His death also brings about our death to sin so that we might live to righteousness. In other words, Christ on the tree is not just about justification. It's not just about conversion. It's also about sanctification. It's the same truth Paul writes about in Romans chapter 6. I want you to turn there. It's a long text. Romans chapter 6. Christ on the tree is not just about getting us to God. It's not just about bringing us into the kingdom. It's not just about our conversion. It's also about our lives that are lived for him so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, which is what Peter is teaching us how to do. Paul says similar things. This is so good. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we, who died to sin, still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who died is free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Look at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin and alive to righteousness is the way Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Do you see the connection here? Between the two parts, that he died as an example for us, and he died as a substitute for us, and these two things cannot be separated. It's because he is our substitution that we live to follow after him, that we live according to his pattern. His substitutionary death does not just have an impact on our position before God, 
that is in justification, but it also has an impact on our practical living that is in our sanctification. These two things go together always. We're dead to sin and alive to righteousness. And then look what he says next. He says, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. By his wounds you were healed. Let me remind you that Isaiah 53 is the background here. And in Isaiah chapter 53 and 1 Peter chapter 2, it is obviously not talking about physical healing here. It's obviously not talking about physical healing, but rather the satisfaction of the wrath of God through the death of Jesus for us so that we might experience a radical spiritual healing of our souls. Friends, if we fixate on physical healing, we settle for far less than what Jesus secured through his death. We fixate only on physical healing as the greatest manifestation of the power of God purchased on the cross. We settle for far less than what was purchased on the cross. R.C. Sproul says it like this. This is good. It's long, but it's good. He says, if we were to do an exhaustive study of the word heal using a theological dictionary, we would see that the primary reference has nothing to do with being cured of physical diseases or ailments. It has to do with being healed of the consequences of sin. He goes on and says, very few people in the history of the world, no matter how much devotion they practice or piety they exhibit, have escaped the final illness. Enoch was translated. Elijah walked with God and was not. Most succumbed to their final illness because the healing, the healing that is in the cross with respect to physical disease is not something that we are guaranteed to receive in this world. We believe in a comprehensive healing of the body at the final resurrection. But what Peter is speaking about here, echoing the teaching of Isaiah in 53, is healing from the punishment due us for sin. By his stripes we are healed. Not so that our physical bodies can just die again, but by his stripes our souls are healed from the punishment that is due us for sin. He took our punishment. And by his stripes we are healed. And look at verse 25. It says, For you were constantly, continually straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I just want to rejoice in what a picture this is. That we were constantly going our own way. We were constantly going the way of the flesh. We were constantly going the way of the world. But now we have returned now we have returned because of the powerful and effective call of the shepherd. We have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. What a picture of salvation that is. You were straying like sheep, and now you've returned to the guardian and shepherd of your souls. But that is not true for all of you. Some of you are still straying. You're out there wandering. You're doing your own thing. You're going the way of the flesh. You're going the way of the world. Maybe today is the day. Maybe the day is the day you hear his voice, the voice of the shepherd calling you, follow me. Oh, if you hear that voice, follow him. Oh, if you hear that voice, repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. He and he only can save you. What grace there is in this text that he calls us in and that he watches over us. Otherwise, we would still be wandering. Otherwise, we would still be wandering around if he had not called us in and not watched over our souls. What a comfort it is that he is guarding and tending to us. He is shepherd and overseer of our souls. When the wolves are stalking around the flock, even when the wolves come in and attack and kill us, we can trust our good shepherd. We can trust our good shepherd. And we echo 
the words of Psalm 23 that says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You were once straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Praise the Lord for that, right? So what do we do about this? Number one, beloved, this place is not our home. And Jesus knew this better than anyone. He knew that this place was not his home. And so he fixed his eyes on the world beyond in order to endure the suffering that he was experiencing. The author of Hebrews says it when he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You fix your eyes on him and follow him because he fixed his eyes beyond the suffering. You do the same. We must know that this world is not our home so that we can look beyond the pain, we can look beyond the trouble that comes our way, knowing that it will not always be like this. If we belong to Jesus, it will not always be like this. The Bible says sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And brothers and sisters in Christ, there is an eternal morning coming for us. It will not always be like this. And so you can endure anything this world can throw at you because a new day is coming. Beloved, this place is not our home. Beloved, there is a war, a war within. Walking the road that Jesus walked, walking that road the way Jesus walked it, does not come naturally to us. Our flesh wants to lash out at any perceived wrong that we suffer. Any slight wrong, I want to lash out. Cut me off in traffic, I want to honk my horn or worse. Any, any perceived wrong that I suffer I want to lash out that's in me and it's in you as well. And our world teaches that to silently suffer injustice is to display the worst kind of weakness. To silently suffer personal injustice is the worst kind of weakness in our world. Our culture says, rise up and fight for your rights. That's the battle cry of our land. And yet the call of the Lord Jesus is way different. He says, not rise up, but take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. Matthew 24, Matthew 16, 24 says, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What's at stake in the battle? What's at stake in the war? Your soul. What if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in glory, in the glory of his Father with the angels, and he will then repay every man according to his deeds. Beloved, there is a war within, and we must fight the flesh by entrusting justice to the Lord. He will come, and he will set it right, and he will do it better than you could anyway. So trust him and be patient. There's a war within, and there is a world to win. If we live like this, if we pattern our lives according to Jesus, if we trace our lives over Jesus' life, if we walk like he walked, the world is going to notice. Because it will be so radically different from the way they act. It will be so radically different from the way they live. 
and that will give us an opportunity to proclaim the gospel when they ask us for an explanation. When they're like, why? Why didn't you rise up? Why didn't you speak out? Why didn't you fight for your rights? It'll give you an opportunity to give an explanation for the hope that is within you, which is exactly where Peter's going to go with this in chapter 3, verse 14. Look what he says and how this all connects. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, Christ as the boss of your life, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks, everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Why would they ask? Why would they ask me for a reason for the hope that's within me? If I live just like them, they'll never ask that. If I do everything just like they do, if I suffer injustice the exact same way they do, they'll never say, why? Why would you do it differently? Brothers and sisters, let's live in such a way that the watching world will ask about our otherworldly hope. They'll say, why would you do it that way? And we can say, because I live for another world. Because I live for a greater king. Because my king came and died. He suffered the, the worst injustice the world has ever seen. But he did it for me. And he did it for you. And he can give you hope that goes beyond this world. You might get all your rights here. You might win all the fights. You might get even with everyone who's wronged you here. But one day you'll stand before the righteous judge of all the world. Be ready for that. The only way to be ready for that is by trusting in Jesus and repenting of your sins. You'll get an opportunity if you live differently. They might even ask you, what's going on with you? Why do you do it that way? And if they ask, you better tell them it's because of Jesus. Because he's changed your life. Because you have sanctified him as Lord in your heart. And he can be Lord of their lives as well. Let's stand together and pray. God, help us. Oh, Lord, help us to see the pattern of Jesus and to live our lives according to that pattern. Help us. We, we will not do this on our own. We will not do this by our own strength. Lord, help us to do that. And we believe that you answer that prayer because you've called us to this. And if you've called us to it, you won't leave us to our own devices to do it. So we trust that this week you will help us to walk according to the pattern of Jesus. But God, we also pray that you will help us to see Jesus dying in our place. That he is the substitute, takes away our sins. By his stripes we are healed. Not in our bodies, but in our souls. From the consequences of sin, because he took them in our place. Father, I pray for your church that you'll give us deeper trust in the sanctifying work of Jesus. Deeper obedience to follow after his pattern. Deeper appreciation for the sacrifice of Christ for us. And I pray for those who are not yours. Father, bring them in today. Show them your righteousness. Show them your justice. Show them their sinfulness. Show them that they deserve the cross. They deserve the beating. They deserve the scourging. And show them that Christ took it for them. That Christ stepped in and took the punishment for them. And, oh, Father, give them faith to put their trust in Jesus, to rest all their hope on Christ alone. And give them repentance to turn away from their sins. To walk a new way. The new way of Christ. We pray in his name.